Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com app or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing great. We hope everyone is having a great day. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about this idea of doing good research. And I read a book recently called Best Practices for Equity Research. Somebody had recommended the book to me. I actually really did enjoy it. It talked a lot about doing good research, but also you know different time management skills and stuff like that. Actually right. stuff that you do yourself, where, for example, you pick certain time slots throughout the day where mm-hmm. you, for example, check your email, you know, don't have that open at all time because it won't really allow you to go deep on a topic and stuff like that. Um, so the book was really great. I'll rec- I recommend it to everybody. I'll put the link of it in the description if you want to read it yourself. Um, but it really had me thinking about, you know, this idea of just doing good research and a lot of research and what I think is doing good research is actually outside of the 10K. Right, okay. you can only get so much information um, from the 10K. And a while ago, you and I we actually did a checklist for going beyond the 10K, right. and we did a podcast on this. We haven't revisited this, but we've also grown as investors because I think this was probably a year and a half ago that we did this. All right. So I figured we could just talk about like this idea of doing good research, what that means to you, you know, scuttlebutt, mm-hmm. how to go deeper on ideas outside of the 10k because the 10k really tells you everything about the past investing is all about the future okay you know so i mean how do you even think about that before we even like really jump into it i mean when you do like what is good research to you so (laughs) because here's the thing right the numbers is all about the business itself sure but it's all doing good research is really learning about the business it's really starting at that first item on the income statement revenue Okay. How do they make money? Yeah. And they're trying to understand that. You know, so like what is good research to you? So two things I would mention are one, we uh um I've mentioned this one before, but in Cable Cowboy, John Malone talks about how his uh dad told him his best his best advice he ever got about math things was guess at the answers before trying to solve the problem. And so that's the first one that I would say is guess at the answer. So the most common thing is when you see something, you go, Why would this be? So, um, for instance, we talked about an efficiency ratio for, for Hingham HIFS. And one of my thoughts on it when looking at the call report and stuff was that maybe they make bigger, longer loans. Because if you make bigger, longer loans, which we could get into, that would make sense as to why your employees make fewer loans and then you could have a lower efficiency ratio and stuff versus things like you could be in places where the rent is cheaper, your employees could just make more loans, you know, things like that. If the loan size on average outstanding each year was higher, then that's what would explain the efficiency ratio. So like you see something, which is that it's one of the most efficient banks in the country, which we talked about, but then you try to figure out, okay, how do they do that? Are they really big mortgages that they're making or something? If that's the case, then you could see how the efficiency ratio could be that way. So one is guessing is a helpful way because then that leads you down to, okay, then I can confirm this or not. You know, Um, the other one, 
uh, is we talked about this sort of with Gainsco, is that I mentioned in Gainsco the risk to an insurance company of adverse selection. So adverse selection would be when the people who want your insurance uh, are worse risks than the general population. You're kind of pricing off of the general population. So you have to learn to what extent that's a problem. Um, one thing that I'm very focused on when looking at stocks is the potential for what I'd call adverse information. So what is the chance here that what I don't know is more bad than the normal amount of random stuff I wouldn't know. So I don't think it's very important to solve for uncertainty and stuff in a stock or a business or whatever. Um, in general, it's most important to focus on those things which could be unusually bad that you might miss. So let's say, and, and sometimes you can be tipped off to this by the, like people would say, why the stock trades this cheaply or something. That's usually the argument that people do is like they look into kind of trying to refute the bear case or whatever. I don't know if that's the best idea, but an example would be like um, NACO, right? Is like, what about wind versus late night? So you try to do research into that specific thing because what I might not know about wind could be worse than just kind of normal not knowing things here. Uh, or we talked about OTCM, it could be regulatory things or whatever. So there could be things that I don't know and that are particularly bad. It's easier if I know a lot about the thing that's particularly bad. Mm -hmm. uh, that could be potentially bad. The toughest ones why I would drop a stock quickly is because I think it's very hard because I'm aware that there's something I don't know, that that thing could be very bad and that I don't know how to figure it out. And so we've talked about that before. Like a common one is like um, Gainsco is a good example. Because we didn't talk to management, I was never going to invest in that company. And the reason for that is just stuff about the non-standard um, auto insurance industry where without talking to management, without getting more of a feel for culture, something about that, I couldn't invest in it. Whereas like I could gather enough data on progressive on different things and stuff as opposed to like on Gainsco. And so in that case, the fact that it was like an overlooked stock was a real problem because I couldn't gain information on something that could be very bad that I could be, you know, misinterpreting on stuff that we talked about with their loss ratio, basically. Mm -hmm. When you look at a company, you're never going to know absolutely everything about a business, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, most CEOs don't even know everything about like right. what's going on in their business. So I'm just kind of curious, like how you break it down. Is it really figuring out here are three to four very important things to the investment thesis and really honing in on that? I mean, how do you think about that? So it's like, okay, let's talk about right. a, a theme park, for example, okay. or a movie theater, whatever mm -hmm. you want to talk about. It's like a theme park. What's very important is, you know, admissions, getting people right. there, and then how much money they spend mm -hmm. at these theme parks and stuff like that, right? So there's a few key drivers that would be very important to the investment thesis, yeah. you know, and then maybe it's like financial, how they, you know, financings or whatever. But how do you typically think about that? Is it really breaking it down to a couple big important things? So in your situation about Gainsco, mm -hmm. to non-standard auto insurance, what are the key drivers to that investment thesis, just as an example? Like, what would you think about? Right. So the things that I'd write down, like literally on a 10K that I write down the questions. And if you ever see me mark out 10K, I literally have these questions written down. They're usually things with question marks and stuff. And the example with Gainsco would be, why did their loss ratio drop? Will it stay low? And what is this from? And then guesses about things like literally, could it be they're they've gotten tighter about not paying out some stuff and things like that could it be stuff about legal stuff could it be 
did they switch what states they were in? Did their mix of business change in some way? Did they get better at doing this because they said, oh, we launched this new um, internal program that we have for our uh, technology stuff that's better at um, helping people, helping our um, people underwrite and stuff like that. Um, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, it is focused in on a couple things like that. Mm-hmm. So it could be that simple depending on the business, like giving the, or the stock proposition, right? So giving the example of like NACO, right? It would literally just be about the durability of Lignite for how long will this last and stuff for the mines that they have. What's the probability that these mines will close down within a short number of years because of the price? It would be totally different if the price was different, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it, it really depends on the, the price of the stock because that determines the risks that you're taking actually as an investor, which are very different depending on the price. It could be the same business. So I am often interested in researching the business to get an idea of the fundamentals, the economics of the business. But it does depend because like um, we've talked about like Monarch Cement or Virtu Motors, right? And they've at times traded at book value or below book value or something. So the question would really just be how likely is it that this asset to its industry and stuff can really be worth less than that book value. And so it just comes down to questions like, does it earn a decent return on it over a full cycle? And mm-hmm. what do private um, transactions go for in this industry? And what kind of things could cause problems that way? It would be totally different if you're paying two times book. I'm not saying that two times book might not be the right price for these things sometimes. Maybe it is. But it's a totally different bet. So you need to gather different kinds of information. And we talked about Zoom Technologies, their mm-hmm. valuation at one point, and you're like, well, I mean, like, what's the total addressable market? How much do they charge right. customers? And it's like the current valuation, the company is baking in so much future growth. So if you were to invest in it, and we did talk about yeah. it, you talked about what you would focus on, right? right? That future growth. So that's a good right. point. I think about, you know, what's the company currently baking into the price? How much optimism yeah. is in the price to sort of decide like what's the key driver to the investment thesis because just because it's a great business doesn't mean it's a great investment obviously right yeah zoom i thought was pretty simple um it because we were talking about it and i really just had three questions which were you know how big do you think the total market can be Mm. how much can they charge and what part of the market can they have so some of it was fairly simple like to think okay is this possible um, one, what part of the market could they have? I guess they could have like virtually the whole market because the amount that you're charging is so low per person versus the, uh, the value that people seem to get from it and stuff. And, um, then the other questions were things like how big can it get? And then you think about, you know, the entire world and all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, what price would people pay? And that's kind of what I asked about. Now that's hard sometimes because like we used Zoom a little bit. And I was shocked when you said that we paid for it mm-hmm. because there's free services that you don't pay for and stuff. And I thought it was kind of, I didn't like the service as much as those free services, mm-hmm. but, um, but it's such a low amount of money that some people might use it for those things. And the biggest thing with this is that it's very easy to um, distribute it with you not having to do anything. So you don't have to do anything. It doesn't cost you anything. It gets spread by other people. It basically goes viral, you know? Um, and that's the, makes the economics of it very simple because when we're talking about the marginal cost of things and stuff, it's very simple that way versus things like when we talk about the insurance things and stuff, it's like the cost of acquisition of the customer. So when you explain the business, it was, and we talked about the market cap, I didn't think it was, eh. 
I didn't think it was an irrational market cap. I went to buy the stock and stuff, but I did, did not believe the price of Zoom was irrational versus what people actually seem to believe because mm. people seem to believe that like everyone in the world would be using it. And I was like, well, if that's the case, it's pretty cheap. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you typically think about like supplier relationships with companies and doing research around that? Yeah. So, um, the biggest things I'm concerned about when doing research in terms of like stuff where you could get information that other people might not have is why do people make the decision that they make, uh, who, who are the key decision makers? So the key decision makers, we tend, I guess when we talk about these things, it's always easier to talk like from a consumer perspective, because it's just easier for people to imagine that. But the key decision stuff would be, why do you make the decision that you do? And I'm much more concerned with that versus do you like this product versus that or something? I actually don't care that much about that. So um, I don't like those questions. So like, I wouldn't want to ask someone, do you like uh, consumers? Do you like Mercedes or BMW? I'd say, if you have the, you chose between Mercedes and BMW, why did you choose and ask each person, you know, who bought each of them? Um, because that answer is more useful in understanding the positioning and stuff. So uh, a really good example is I had owned stock in Breeze Eastern. And the reason why that, a big reason why I was interested in that stock in part was I had learned from people who did search and rescue helicopter um operations so they actually ran it for that fire department or that state or that city or whatever um that it was very cheap and not very hard at all to use a kit basically to switch from um one supplier to another so a model of a helicopter or whatever might kind of have this option to add on to add on breeze eastern but they had this competitor that you could switch to and they're like here's how much it probably costs and here's how many guys that work here could probably do it. And like, it's not hard. It's not very technical. I could, I could show you like, you know, there's a manual that you can get and stuff that's like, you know, it's more complicated than Ikea, but it's, it's not something it's, it's not a lot more complicated than Ikea. You know, it, anyone who, the, anyone who could do any sort of engineering stuff could easily do it. So, and it was very cheap and didn't take long. Um, but he was like, but I would never change. Right. I just couldn't imagine anyone. And I can't imagine anyone else changing the stuff. That's the answer that I wanted, as opposed to the answer that the reason they weren't changing and stuff is because it's very expensive. And that was the only reason. Did he say why? Yes. There's no he, he felt there's no logical reason why you would switch from one to the other. And that's the best answer there is, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you think that Coke and Pepsi are fundamentally very, very similar in price and quality and everything, but for some reason you've already committed to Coke or Pepsi, that's the way that you're the most loyal um, customer possible. If you believe there is a significant difference between two choices, that becomes a bit more of a problem. So that's what I mean in the, like, um, if you give an example of Mercedes, BMW, or whatever, but let's say you compare Mercedes or BMW versus Toyota. That becomes more of a problem when you talk to people because there are actual reasons why they might say, well it's a trade-off between this thing that I care about and this other thing that I care about. And at some point um, I could be convinced to Mm -hmm. make this sort of switch or whatever versus if you think that two things are fundamentally much more similar. So if you think they're much more similar, but you're loyal to one or the other, that's the best answer. The worst answer is technology that the worst answer that you can ever get is they have better technology. You never want to hear that answer. Is that because it could constantly change? It could change. Yeah, it could change. And 
and also they're telling you it's a specification thing basically so in some way they can measure it and stuff so like it's much better if they say they like the interface or they like the training that they give or they like whatever about it much much better um in the example that i gave of the the aerospace parts thing uh breeze eastern the answer they gave always was um there are two reasons one is uh so you ran a fleet with you know like basically a helicopter um manufacturer so let's say you always used airbus things or whatever there was just a default option with airbus to take and they always took that one so for the model that they had there was just like an add-on to add on this rescue hoist or the other one but then the only reason they would switch after that basically was customer service because customer service industry was very poor uh, because the companies had very strong market power very strong market power so they had a policy of basically not keeping sufficient inventory on hand so what would happen is you would have need a repair and they'd basically be like oh we'll make that now not let's have sufficient parts on hand so that we can meet demand for that all the time like you would in most industries and so they kind of abused that kind of thing so um because of that that meant that some people got annoyed with them and then would switch. And they were like, that's the reason why I would imagine it happening is because of a customer service problem, which is the answer that you want to have usually that you kind of, we've talked about that before. You want an industry where you kind of have to lose your customer. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's like really mess up. Yeah. Like whether that's an insurance company, a bank an ad agency that in general, it's very hard to take a satisfied customer uh, away from another, because for the most part, people don't search for something else. That's what you always want. Any customer that's in search mode is much more, uh, is a much more valuable lead. They're a hotter lead and they're, they're cheaper for anyone else to acquire. And they're just like, um, that's the big danger. So that's why I say like when, uh, you know, when I give examples of like industries I'd rather not be in and stuff, an industry that's kind of tough is like say major appliances, right? Because everyone is going to be in a situation where they look at side-by-side major appliances. Same with cars. I'd rather own a car dealer because they might not think that carefully about which car dealer mm-hmm. to go to yeah. than a car uh, company because the car company, you know they're going to look at two or more cars. And you don't want that. You don't want to be in a business where they're looking at multiple things next to each other and comparing them. Like mm-hmm. You don't want any business where they're talking about the specs. I don't want them to be in a business where they're talking to you about what the horsepower of this one is and the gas mileage. That's terrible, you know? And you want to be in a business where none of that is what they're talking about. And so the that I always find the most useful is to talk to people about why did you make the buying decision that you make? And it's very um, helpful. And sometimes they're pretty honest about it. And, and sometimes it might strike people as pretty irrational about how they're thinking. Because I have talked to people in some industries where I've said things like, if they raise the price three or four times, what would happen? And they said, the, the best answer I had ever of that was someone said, I'd buy more from them and less from the competitors. That one was fascinating. But um, the most, but in some cases they said it wouldn't matter because it's right. They said to me, look, it's about 0.5% of the cost of the project. And so if you raised it to 1.5, 2%, something like that, I'd still do it because I use this supplier on all these projects that I do. It Even if I would only change my bid on these projects by a few percent, and it has to get to the point where I would switch for all my projects because I'm not going to just switch for one or something. Like, you know, I trust them because I don't want to run late on do, delivering this to the customer, the end customer. So it has to get to the point where I would really switch for everything. So that's not the issue. It was like price is not an issue. The issue is like reliability of stuff and things like that. How did you find the right like suppliers to reach out to 
and to ask these questions and stuff, you know, because for every company it's different, right? So it's like if you're looking at a bank and maybe like that relationship with their customer is very important to the stickiness of the deposits and just to the bank in general. It's like, how do you do research on that? Do you talk to people that have, you know, that bank with a certain bank? Is it reading customer reviews online, trying to get a sense for the durability of all that? Because from this Mm -hmm. podcast, really what I'm, what I think you're, you know, basically saying, it's all about the durability of the product. Yeah. Right. And I'm just kind of curious. So like, how did you even go about reaching out to those suppliers? So this this is about, you know, doing good research. Yeah. Um, in general, the easiest thing to get people to talk about and stuff is their own job. So it has to be something where you can find out that they uh, you just need to find the person who has this job to make this decision. Now, some people may not talk to you at some companies because they've been warned sort of about it or whatever. The more aware they are that they're working for a public company, the more that there's negative publicity associated with it. Like, for instance, we could talk to people who might talk to things about Breeze Eastern. If I tried to do the same thing with people talking about Transdime once they were in the news and stuff, none of their customers would talk to me probably because they wouldn't want to talk to me because they think that no matter what I say, it's some sort of press thing or something that has something to do with Transdime, has something to do with the industry, whatever, you know? So anything controversial will be a problem. But at other times, it's fairly easy um, like, I mean, I, I talked about America's car mart or whatever. I didn't really have an experience where people who, um, ran branches of America of, of car marts, uh, were reluctant to talk. Mm-hmm. They were reluctant to say some things. I think I mentioned like, um, a couple of them, I think said, basically were saying we modified loans sometimes, but I'm not supposed to say use the modification word, um, you know, that kind of thing, which is not a surprise. And it's not like the company denies that that happens or whatever, but I mean like they, they are a little uh, reluctant to use whatever sorts of things. Um, but no, they're happy to talk about their job. So you just have to find the person who makes the decision. Um, in the case of, like the breezy stuff, it was literally, um, that's kind of easy because when they take orders and things, they might put out press releases because they're like proud of it or whatever. So they'll put out something that's like, we've just taken delivery of six Boeing, whatever, and they're equipped with, and they literally say what it is. So you just do searches to look for people who took those deliveries and stuff. Um, I was surprised when I called franchisees, how yeah. willing some people were to talk about the actual franchise themselves and, and their experience working with the company and stuff like that. In general. My, and even like, yeah. give me like numbers. Yeah. Like what average numbers that they, they sure. do or what the best one does. I mean, you know. In my experience, it is very, very easy to talk to people about their jobs. And in particular, people love it if you ask them why they make the decisions that they make. The, the One of the most common answers that I've gotten is my boss has never asked me this question. <laughs> yeah. So like with the, like for instance, with the um, rescue voice thing, they're like, my boss has never asked me why I pick one over the other. Never. And uh, they're fascinated by it. And they're like, oh yeah, let me think about this and why I do and everything. Like, should I be doing this? <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're, they're very willing to talk about how they make the decisions that they make. Mm-hmm. Um they may be less willing to talk about certain other things. I think cultural things can be hard to get answers to. I think sometimes things about competitors can sometimes be hard, stuff like that. Um, But stuff about their own, why they make the decisions the way they do, their own thought process is very easy. It's always best to talk to someone. I think it's always best to talk to someone in an organization, zeroing in like 100% on their job, on their function. 
So like the franchisee things was really good in, for you because basically they're the one person on site who's making all of these decisions and stuff. So you get everything. It's like talking to a CEO or something really, mm, you know, yeah. it's really useful that way. Um, whereas for other people, it may not be. If you're talking to someone at a, a book company or something and they buy books, they can tell you a lot of things about what they do and they'll give you really good answers for that. But what they do is actually a little different than like what the company does mm -hmm. and stuff. And so um, it may not help you in terms of the business because they know so little you'd be surprised how little some people in the organization know about well, why other parts of the organization are doing what they're doing um, many people in an organization are not very financially oriented so that's a big thing that you need to keep in mind um, they're they're going to be much less financially oriented than you are and you're going to be surprised by that if you're used to dealing with investor relations people cfos and ceos other people in the organization do not think as much about money to put it honestly, is that, and may not think about some of the things about how the company makes the money the way it does. Like um, if your job is, if you work at a, a movie theater chain and your job is to pick which movies to show, you don't necessarily have to be that financially sophisticated a person to do that. You need to be tapped into tastes that people have and what do you think is going to outperform like in terms of be a hit. You don't actually need to know that much more than that. You just have to have a, be a good programmer in a sense, you know, and being a good programmer of what people on TV or movies or whatever people want to watch does not really require you to know a lot about how much different things cost and how the company makes money and all sorts of things. So, but it would be great to talk to someone like that. Mm -hmm. You'd want to talk to them, uh, but they just don't know as much about those other sorts of things. I always hate it when I'm trying to speak to a company and I have to talk to like an investor relations rep. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they like outsource it to a firm that handles a bunch of different companies. I just feel like it's not as productive. I'm like, I feel like you're telling me stuff that, you know, I could read myself on the internet and not get like a good feel for certain things or just very general. Yeah, I haven't found the investor relations uh, people to usually be that useful. Um, and I don't even, I mean, I guess one thing that they're useful in that we could talk about is shareholder base mm -hmm. they have a very high awareness of who their shareholders are they may also have some awareness of kind of capital allocation strategy and stuff of the company like some idea of that i say those are the two things that they know pretty well um that like uh and we are interested in that what the shareholder base is like and things like that so it's always I, one of the questions yeah i think they, they do have a pretty good idea for that and and um you know, we also kind of avoid companies that have investor relations things and stuff, I guess you could say, because we're looking more for overlooked companies. Um, but yeah, I've always found that difficult. And then the, the second least useful one I found is CFO. So investor relations is the least useful. CFO is the second least useful. Why Which is that? Because I already know most of the things the CFO mm -hmm. is going to... I mean, I've read the reports. I've read the... I mean, I can bring whatever thoughts I have about what you would be doing if you were the CFO and stuff. I've read the 10K and stuff. I mean, usually if the CF, if I'm talking to CFO or the head, you know, accounting finance person in any organization, we're very much likely to be like talking the same language on the same wavelength or whatever. So it's just, I'm not, they gonna, also know what you want to hear too. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to learn a lot of, um, new things from that mm -hmm. usually. Um, I would say the yeah, the CFO and and it's fascinating because I think one of the most probably the most common when you read things online, 
discussion boards and um, blogs and things and stuff. I think the most common when they say they talk to some of the companies, they talk to the CFO. And I think the CFO is the least useful to Mm -hmm. me because the CFO has the least amount of information they're going to give you that isn't in the annual report and stuff. Now, they might give you projection stuff. CFOs are big on projections. But the projection, as you know, the projection stuff is not the stuff I'm the most interested in. I'm like more interested in what are the product economics and things like that. So I know the answer, but mm-hmm. who's the best person to reach out to? The most productive person to get a hold of? You know the answer to this. I think I do. Okay. General managers. Yes. Yeah. I would care most about talking to general managers. Boom. I know it. Um, so, I mean, it depends on the company because some companies don't, you know, they, it's a little complicated in terms of the general manager stuff. So in that case, it would be the people, it's often the people who interact with another firm. Um, so if it's a business to business thing, it's people who, who, you know, are buyer are the buyers or sellers basically. Mm-hmm. But, um, also like computer services, for instance, right. That is an example that we wouldn't there have information on like general managers. It's not a thing there, but the people who, uh, how do you land an account, you know, is kind of useful mm-hmm. information. How do you keep it? Um, those are incredibly hard to research in my experience. Consulting firms, uh, core processors, ad agencies, things like that. Each account is so small. Um, it's so specific and so internal to the industry and stuff. And it's so like hidden from view from everyone else that I just think that professional services stuff is very, very hard to get actual research done on. Um I like the businesses and stuff, but it's just very hard. Like, why did you choose this consultant? Why did you choose this ad mm-hmm. agency? It's just very, very hard. Um, but yeah, general managers for, for retail oriented things and stuff like that. It's definitely general managers because they're like duplicating the same thing over and over again across the country mm-hmm. that way. And they have the most kind of information about um, how the business really works. Yeah. I think as investors, we're always told to, you know, focus on, Cash generation, free mm-hmm. cash flow, net income, really things that are further down the income statement right. to the cash flow statement. But I really do think doing good research on the business, it all starts with those first two lines on the income statement, revenue and then, you know, cost of goods sold and like gross profits and really spending your time there understanding how the business actually works, why it works. And you have a quote that I would love to tweet okay. a lot because it always gets a lot of engagement how you learn a lot, the further you go up the income statement, the more you learn about the business, the further down you go down the income statement, the more you learn about who's running the business. Yeah. So I think doing good research, it all starts with those first two items on the income statement. Yeah, and like the stuff we're talking about could be 95% of the time you spend. It's not 95% of the importance, unfortunately. The truth is that like, what price to free cash flow and stuff is trading at could be like half of the importance of your eventual decision. But you can see that instantly. You don't need to do a lot of research. That's not research. It's just glancing. Right. But you need to then say, okay, how at risk is this free cash flow Mm -hmm. or whatever? Or, okay, price to book is less than one. Okay, how solid is book value? And that's then your research. Mm -hmm. You know, the research then takes, you know, it could be 20 times longer than the financial analysis that you did initially. It's not going to be 20 times more important, but it's verifying and figuring out the stuff that, you know, of like I said, like what bet you're making. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Hit the subscribe button. If you have not already, go to your app store, either on Google Play or the iOS app, type in Focus Compounding, and guess what? You're going to see the best app you've ever seen in the world. And it's called Focus Compounding. If you want to sign up, click the link down below. Go to focuscompounding.com slash app. Thank you so much to everybody for all the support. And we will see you in the next podcast.